So let me introduce our, our speaker this morning. Uh, many of you know him. He's, he's probably been our most frequent guest speaker, guest preacher here, uh, Andy Moore. Andy and I are good friends. We worked together for nine years uh, working for the CCO, Coalition for Christian Outreach, in partnership with Belfield Presbyterian Church. Uh, Andy is still there, I think, entering your 17th year? Yeah. yeah. All right. 17 years that he's been working with college students, pointing them to this worldview of Christian faith and encouraging them to, uh, to seek God's kingdom through their vocation. So, Andy, if you want to come on up here, um, I'll just pray for you and sure. turn you loose. <laughs> so let me pray. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Andy. I thank you for the friendship that we have had over these years and the, uh, just the camaraderie and brotherhood of that and the ways in which we have challenged one another and uh, spurred one another on to, to action and faith. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as he comes here today to uh, give me some rest in, in, in the preparation of preaching, that I would be able to, all of us would be able to sit under his teaching and that, uh, that, that you would speak through him, that your Holy Spirit would be present here and uh, communicating your word to us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I, uh, I'm honored to be here. Um, last time I was here, uh, I was not able to partake in your great Baptist tradition of a potluck. And uh, today I will be able to, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, Pulled pork, is that what you said? I love pulled pork, so I can't wait. So before I begin, uh, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So has anyone here ever heard of the idiom, you can't go home again? Anybody ever heard of that? The phrase? Yes. Uh, actually, Bon Jovi actually had a, uh, uh, a hit based on that phrase. The song came out in the mid-2000s. Uh, their, their song took the opposite meaning of what the phrase intended. Uh, the song was called, Who Says You Can't Go Home? Um, but trust me, John, uh, I, don't, I don't know if anybody wants to go back home to New Jersey. So just saying, I'm, that's, a, that's a joke. Uh, New, we went on vacation to New Jersey last year, and it was beautiful with the beaches. So uh, the phrase actually means that once you've left your, your hometown or your childhood home and you've moved on, you can't return to the same state of mind that you had before. You can't recapture the same feelings or experiences that you had when you were in a different place in your life. Uh, it describes a feeling of nostalgia, uh, a longing for the past, but also an understanding that one can never truly return to it. So I had an experience like this a few years ago. Uh, I was visiting my best friends uh, for a weekend in Morgantown, West Virginia. We're watching the NFL draft together. We do that yearly. And we were driving around town visiting uh, our old college haunts, and I started to get really nostalgic because Morgantown uh, is a very special place to me. It's a place marked with growth. It's a place where Jesus found me. And I, I thought to myself, wow, it would just be great if I could move back here. But if I move back here, God would have to provide a way. And uh, a few days later, I kid you not, I got a phone call. And it was from a pretty well-known church in Morgantown asking me to apply for the position of director of college ministry. Um, my former campus minister, unbeknownst to me, actually gave them my name. Was this a sign from God, right? After all, I had just said God would have to provide a way. And so seeing in no harm uh, and listening to what the church had to offer, 
um, and the appeal of moving back to West Virginia, uh, I decided to apply. And after a strenuous uh, interview process where they actually wined and dined me a little bit, I was offered the job. Um, on paper, the job seemed uh, pretty prestigious. It was a big-time job for a pastor at a big-time church with um, a way to work my way up the pastoral ladder. The pay was about the same, um, but I wouldn't have to raise half my salary anymore, and so that seemed pretty good. However, um, I turned down the job, and uh, I had multiple reasons for turning down the job. Number one, I just... I, didn't feel called to the job. I felt called to stay in Pittsburgh continuing my job as a campus minister. Uh, another reason I didn't agree with all of their theology, um, and uh, I, I didn't want to leave behind an already established community. Now, a lot of these reasons leave people puzzled. Well, couldn't God use you in Morgantown? Well, yes, God can use anyone anywhere, but power, fame, money, I don't believe these are reasons for leaving and taking a job, and my wife Emily actually felt the same way, and my kids as well. You see, I was looking at Morgantown through rose-colored, nostalgic glasses. They clouded my judgment. I longed for what was instead of focusing on what will be. I wanted the good old days. Um, I don't believe I'm alone in feeling this way. I believe probably everybody here has felt this. In fact, I would argue we, we all long for a little bit of what was, uh, as if we're all Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite just begging to be put in that fourth quarter to win that football game, right? You, you must not lose sight of what can be. Uh, Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20, I think is a perfect example about clinging to the past instead of focusing on what God wants for us in our future. So we're going to explore this passage together. That's Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. That's, this is Nehemiah talking. Then I rose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one that, on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had no, not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand uh, of them, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But then Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Uh, servant of Geshem the Arab heard of it, and they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and his servants will arise, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. 
So um, I feel like I always put this like little apology when I preach here because I know many of you are thinking, well, this is just such a weird, bizarre passage, right? Why would you preach from this? Well, I was actually assigned this passage to preach from in one of my seminary classes. And uh, the professor loved giving very difficult passages or what's seeming, uh, could be seemingly a mundane passage and see how, how do you react to preaching these texts. And honestly, I love, I love a difficult passage. I love the challenge of it. Um, and it's often when we wrestle with those frustrating or seemingly mundane passages that we can experience immense growth. And uh, that God can teach us something that we didn't even know was there. And this was one of those passages for me, and hopefully it will be to you too. You see, in this passage, the Israelites were in a state of yearning for what was, wanting to relive the good old days uh, before their exile. God, just, just let things look like they did before. Let us return to Jerusalem. Let us rebuild the temple or the city walls. And God heard their prayer and the church called, so to speak. So this happens in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, now these books were originally a unified work. They were just one book, and then they were later divided into separate books. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many people into exile. And about 50 years later, the book tells of the Israelites returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Uh, it focuses on three key leaders who led these rebuilding efforts, Zerubbabel, which is a fantastic name, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And through their leadership, the people returned, the city walls were, were rebuilt, the temple was restored. And so the designs of the books are centered around these three individuals. Initially, Zerubbabel leads a group of exiles back to Jerusalem uh, with the aim of reconstructing the temple. Then, after almost six decades, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to impart knowledge of the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, he does this to rejuvenate the community. And finally, Nehemiah takes on the task of restoring the walls of Jerusalem, which is what we talk about today. So for the Israelites, their prayers had been answered. Things were going back to the way things were. Nehemiah, uh, let's talk about Nehemiah. Nehemiah held the distinguished position of cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, who was a Persian king. And this was an office of trust. Uh, tasting the king's wine and food, the cupbearer stood between the king and death. And that Nehemiah, who was a Jew, and was a captive, served the Gentile king in such uh, a strategic capacity was an unusual credit uh, and honor. It shows his character. And some visitors informed Nehemiah uh, in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, some visitors informed him of the dilapidation of Jerusalem's walls. And this upsets him so much that he mourned, not just for a little amount of time, but he mourned for days. And he immediately took his burdens to the Lord in prayer. And his grief became so apparent that the king, um, that uh, apparent to the king that after Nehemiah asked for permissions, he's allowed to go back to Jerusalem to re rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort, gives him resources to, to build this wall. And that's when we get to our section in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah arrives at the city, and he waits there for three days, it says. Now, we don't really know what's happening in these three days. Perhaps uh, he was obtaining information. Perhaps he was praying for guidance. In, in Ezra 8, we see that Ezra rested for three days when he came to Jerusalem. 
Perhaps Nehemiah did as well. I'm guessing that uh, Nehemiah probably did all of these things because three days is significant in the Bible. It represents a time of waiting, of testing, of preparation, purification, transformation before a significant event or change occurs. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. The Israelites were asked to consecrate themselves for three days. Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as uh, the Apostle Paul, was blinded for three days. And of course, Jesus was dead for three days before being resurrected. So I think it's safe to assume that these three days were significant to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as was fitting to his character, did not rush into action without seeking God's guidance. And after three days, Nehemiah arose, and in secrecy and in caution, he began to plan his work on the wall. We see in verse 12 that this was not just commissioned by the king, but this was actually commissioned by God as well. God is the one telling him to rebuild the wall. And he does this under the cover of darkness. He does so with only a few trusted men because he was able, uh, he wanted to keep this mission and its plans hidden. The secrecy was necessary given the political climate of the time because neighboring nations and local officials would have been suspicious of efforts to rebuild the wall. Is, is Jerusalem preparing for war? So Nehemiah was not impulsive or hasty in his decision-making. Rather, he took time to assess the situation and develop a thoughtful plan of action. And he does a full survey of the state of Jerusalem's walls. He starts at the valley gate and he ends there as well. He visits places like the Dragon Spring, the Dung Gate, the Fountain Gate, the King's Pool, and finally back to the valley. And we see that he visits two sources of water, and he visits an east gate and a west gate, getting a full survey of what's happening. But I can probably say for certain that the Dung Gate was probably not a popular hangout spot for teenagers. I could be wrong. I don't know. So after each inspection, Nehemiah notes the destruction. He says, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And he also says, there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Well, why was there no room? Because the wall was completely destroyed. It was just rubble. And everywhere Nehemiah went, the wall was in ruins. And this confirms what he heard in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Nehemiah was informed of the city's condition and weeps. It literally means that he bemoans. He viewed the city as dead. And he then returns to Jerusalem to look at it with his own eyes like a wake. It was no longer a city, at least not the city he once knew. It was now a graveyard. And so he visits each tombstone, a tombstone wall, one by one. And he is reminded of what once was, and he prays for resurrection. And he told no one. Nehemiah kept his plans uh, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem a secret until he had completed his inspection. And once he inspected this graveyard, he spills the beans. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And so he gathers the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And he makes this bold call to action. He lays out the problem, the state of the city's defenses, and he proposes a solution. Let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Let's go back to the way things were, the good old days. Nehemiah had a deep concern for the welfare of his city, but also the inhabitants of that city. The city's state of uh, dis disrepair had taken an emotional toll on the people of Jerusalem who were suffering derision and humiliation. 
And by calling for the rebuilding of the wall, Nehemiah is not only concerned with the physical security of the city, but also with the restoration of the people's dignity. He reveals to the people that this is not his plans. It's not just the king's plan. This is God's plan. And yet he is still met with opposition. They scoff at his idea. Uh, The derision that the Jews had suffered is now placed upon Nehemiah. He becomes the focus of jeering, the focus of humiliation. They accuse him of being an insurrectionist. And Nehemiah responds with a declaration of faith in God and a determination to continue his mission. He tells his opponents that God will make the Israelites prosper and that they will arise and build, but his opponents have no claim. So eventually we find out, when reading onward in Nehemiah, that he does rebuild the wall. He rebuilds it in 52 days, which is amazing. And yet, nothing changes. And that presents some tension. And this tension is especially apparent when we take into account what God said to the prophet Zechariah, who was Ezra and Nehemiah's contemporary. God said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city devoid of walls. Instead, it would be enveloped by God's presence. God would be the wall. God would be the protector, and the city would be inclusive of people from all nations who would join the covenant people. Well, maybe things changed and went back to normal when the temple was rebuilt, which Zerubbabel did, if you remember me talking about that. What once was, now is. Things have returned, or have they? In Ezra Ezra 3, we see that they start rebuilding the temple again. And they have a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the laying of the foundation, right? It was a joyous occasion. And yet it says this in chapter 3, verse 12 of Ezra. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Some Some were joyous, some were happy. Yet not all were happy. The moments of the ceremony and and the final dedication of the temple are crucial. And it's important to remember that the past story of the, the tabernacle or the temple's dedication, as those were moments when the fiery cloud of God's presence descended upon the temple and he dwelt with his people. However, this doesn't happen in the new temple, leaving some in despair. The elders who had witnessed the magnificence of the previous temple uh, expressed their sorrow. The new temple falls short of their expectations and the glorious past that they remember. They realize you can't go home again. You see, the Israelites have a coveting problem. They want uh, what they don't have, and often it is what was. God says, I'll give you a promised land, but they say, we want, we want to go back to Egypt. God says, you don't need a king. I'll be your king. And they say, no, we, we, uh, give us an earthly king like the other nations. God says, a Messiah is coming who will be your new temple. And they say, no, we, we want the old temple. 
like I just said, the Israelites demanded a king because they wanted to be like other nations, and God gave them over to their desires. The Israelites wanted a restored Jerusalem, and they got it. The Jews were so struck by grief that they couldn't look forward to what was promised to them. Grief will do this to anybody. When I was younger, I would often visit my grandparents' house. Um, And when I was there, my grandfather and I would spend the night on their back deck looking at the stars and watching bats fly over me. And when it was late enough, we would retreat to the basement of their house, and there were two army cots set up, and we would each lay on one, and he would tell me stories about serving in the Navy and fighting in World War II or what it was like to grow up in the hollers of West Virginia. He was bitten by a copperhead and survived, and he was floating down a Russian creek on a log, and he nearly drowned, and he survived. And uh, they are some of the most treasured and precious memories that I have of my grandfather. And almost 17 years ago, my grandfather died of lung cancer. Um, And on the night of his death, I remembered those times. And how I wish for just a few precious moments with him, sitting on the back deck getting eaten by mosquitoes, or laying on that uncomfortable cot, hanging on every word that came out of his mouth and staying up way past my bedtime. I wanted that. I wanted that again. Because the experience of grief is, is one that everyone will inevitably face at some point in their lives, whether it's a loss of a loved one or a job or a relationship or just something else entirely. Our initial response is often a desire to return to the way things were before that loss occurred. People long for a sense of normalcy, a return to the comfort of familiarity or routine. However, the reality is that things will never truly return to the way they were before the loss. You can't go home again. Because life is constantly changing and every experience we have shapes us and alters our perspective. Grief and loss are no exception to this. They actually add to it. When we lose something, we are forced to confront our own mortality and the fleeting nature of the things that we hold dear to us. Our world is turned upside down and we're left to pick up these pieces and move forward in a new reality. And in the midst of this pain and turmoil, it can be tempting to cling to what we once had and ignore the new opportunities that may be emerging. We become fixated on the past, on what we have lost, and on our longing for things to be the way they once were. But in doing so, we risk out, we risk on missing out on God's blessings that he might have for us in our future. Because God is a God of hope, and God is a God of restoration, and he promises to bring beauty from ashes. So even in the midst of our pain and grief, he is at work preparing for a way for us to move forward. But if we remain stuck in the past, if we refuse to let go of what we have lost, we may miss the opportunities that God is placing before us. This is how humanity can be defined, though. We can be defined as reaching and crawling over each other to get back to what once was, trying to bull rush or spin move past the cherubim, uh, back into the Garden of Eden, back into Shalom, the way things were and were meant to be. Yet it is only through Jesus Christ that we can ever move forward. As theologian and author C.S. Lewis once said, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And what's ahead? 
God has promised us the same thing that he promised the Israelites, the hope of salvation and the Messiah, the new temple, Jesus Christ. He is the one like Nehemiah who took on derision and suffering. He became the focus of jeering. He became the focus of humiliation. He was the one accused of being an insurrectionist. And once we quit focusing on our lives in the past on what once was and realize that we can't go home again, we can focus on the future of a new, more glorious home that can only be found in him. He is the restorer. He will walk from tombstone to tombstone and bring life. Through him, you are finally home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to focus on the glory days, to focus on what once was, but our glory days lie with you. We are thankful for the hope that you bring us, dear God, that one day there will be no more pain or crying or mourning, for these have passed away, and that you will make all things new. We thank you that you are a God who is who he is and will do what you say you will do. So, dear God, we ask as we focus on the hope of the future that we can live in the present, obeying your precepts and your commandments. God, let us become more like you and live in your hope. We ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.